right, welcome. This is Orion Rising. I am your host, Leonard O'Neill. All right, guys, welcome aboard. This is our Wednesday show, and I got a really good guest on today. Um, I had this guy, I interviewed him a long time ago, and we've been trying to, to hook up. I've been trying to get back with him for quite a while uh, because of what he's got going on and his uh, stuff he's been working on over there in uh, the other side of the world, over in the desert out there in Egypt. And, you know, he's getting, been doing all kinds of research, and I finally got him because he got done over there, and he actually came home, took a vacation, and then now he's raring to go again, and uh, I got a hold of him finally, and we got him to come back on the show here. And if you guys haven't seen the, the flyer that we got out there, then you're not quite sure who I have on uh, today. But uh, I have uh, Stephen Myers on back finally. So, Stephen, say hello to the whole world. Say, hey, well, how's it going? Hello, world. Thank you, Leonard, for having me back on your show. Yeah, it's been a bit, huh? I'm glad to have you back because, uh, you know, our conversations are, are stellar. I love talking to you. Love love picking your brain. Love talking about uh, everything that you know. So uh, for, for those of you who are out there who may not know Stephen Myers, because, you know, he's not one of those guys that's like all over. Well, he is kind of all over television, but he's not like on the Ancient Aliens show. So you guys, a lot of people don't know him. They're like, who's this guy? Well, this is like the leading researcher when it comes to the pyramids on the face of the earth, there's not very many people that know more than he does. In fact, most of the people will, will be talking about some of those people as well. Um, you know, they, they sort of run in a, in a pack and they kind of work all together. And so they're, so when you hear about different guys who are measuring things and doing stuff and he wrote a book, chances are he was consulting with Stephen Myers and Stephen Myers doing the same thing on the other return. So, um, and, and so why don't you go ahead and tell people who you are and, you know, kind of give us a background of, of how you got into the whole industry that you're in and then tell, then we'll go into what you're working on currently and what you just got done with. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, my name is Stephen Myers. I'm the founder of a nonprofit foundation, uh, dedicated to studying how and why the great pyramid was built. That's called the Pharaoh's Pompa Foundation. And our website, which we have just updated, believe it or not, is called is at the website address is thepump.org. Real simple. So uh, that's uh, me, and uh, I'm a, a book author. Uh, wrote a couple of books about the Great Pyramid. Produced a couple of uh, DVD documentaries that are all available on Amazon. So. Uh, I am, I'm everything about the Great Pyramid. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're even kind of downplaying it. <laughs> he's, he's, but however, you have to understand what he just said. When I'm everything about the big pyramid, um, he he has more knowledge than than you know probably God about the big pyramid. I mean, that's my opinion, right? So uh, let's get into that, right? So so you know the foundation. You know, you you started this nonprofit and it's called the the Pump .org. Let's let's talk about why it's called that. Right. Because some of you people out there, you don't know what his what his theory is. And he and I've talked about this before. And, um, you know, it's pretty sound. That's why, I, you know, I keep saying to everybody, you guys got to listen to what Stephen has to say here. Out of all the theories that I've heard and we talked off off uh, camera a, a little while ago, about this a couple minutes ago, where there's so many theories out there that people have wild, crazy theories and, and they'll want to believe that. But then when you have a theory that's actually plausible, people go, oh, yeah, no. Right? Am I right, Stephen? They do that, right? Oh, you're right, yeah. Well, Egyptology is the best example of their idea of the big ramp, you know, that was 
bigger than the Great Pyramid itself, and these workers with strong backs were able to drag these stones, some weighing as much of, as a locomotive, and all of that, and then uh, Egyptology certainly doesn't have any valid demonstrations uh, to accompany their wild stories. So, uh, and then other people with the idea that the Great Pyramid was some sort of a weapon or a beacon or that type of thing. So, yeah, there are a lot of wild stories uh, about the Great Pyramid, to be sure. Well, and, and even I, I do a show on Fridays that's um, that I've, uh, I'm talking about. It's uh, dedicated to the Law of One. And in the, even in that, there's a wild theory that the that the uh, uh, pyramid was built by uh, aliens and they claim that in that uh, in the law of one in the very beginning the first session of that these alien life forms is supposedly channeling through this woman uh, claims that they were here they built the pyramids the, or the big one the the one the big one at Giza so there's many theories out there that are you know that sound crazy some of them are even crazier. I mean, like you just said, with you know, block and tackle and a bunch of guys with strong backs trying to drag a locomotive uphill, you know, and the angle had to have been pretty steep at that point, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> had to have been like more than a mile uphill by the time they were getting to midway or up towards the top, right? That's right, but Egyptology doesn't engage in the scientific method by providing demonstrations, so it's all, they're, they're just all storytellers. Well, yeah, I mean, just the in and of itself, even if you don't have, say, that they went straight, you know, the, the there's a couple of theories about how they put the earth to where they built a ramp that was straight on either side, and then they have the ones that wrapped around. The amount of earth that they would have to use is is insane. They would be having people uh, burying the, the pyramid as they were going and then uh, packing it down so that they could walk on it. And then going around in circles up and up and up and up. I mean, they would they would have to have a pyramid in and of itself just out of Earth to do it, right? That's correct. And in in the real world, there's has never been a demonstration of people pulling a stone around the corner of a spiral ramp. That's never been demonstrated. So right. it is seems to be unworkable. Yeah, I mean, you would think the logistics of that alone, just, you know, it, it, if it was round, you would have to be pulling it around a round corner. And if it wasn't, you'd have a 90-degree angle. How is that going to happen? I know it. So it's uh, not not a very good theory. And a lot of people in uh, the here and now don't go along with the ideas of Egyptology with the precision stone cutting accomplished using hand tools and all their other stories that they never substantiate. Well, yeah, I mean, let's let's go down that road for a minute. They're wanting us to believe that that they had these crude at the time. What were they using? Bronze. Yeah, tools, they right? say uh, Egyptologists say they had bronze chisels and did extremely precise stonework with that. In fact, the, the, yeah, the, some of the stuff that was carved over there, especially if you go to Luxor. You know, some of the stuff that was carved over there, they're claiming was done by hand. Now, I know that we have, <clears throat> sorry, we, pardon me, we have sculptures in history that have made some phenomenally looking statues out of chiseling, but they weren't using bronze tools to do that, okay? Right. And, and that, you know, so they're saying, well, if these guys can make like, you know, um, the statue of David, then, you know, they could make these, the, you know, the they could do the sphinx, they could do the 
the different things at Luxor where they have the big, you know, faces of Khufu and stuff. But we can't duplicate that now with machines, man. <laughs> right? So. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, well, what, yeah. What, what's really interesting is that the casing stones that the Great Pyramid used to be covered in have surfaces that are five by seven feet and they are flat uh, to within one fiftieth of an inch, which is less than a fingernail yeah. thickness. Yeah, that's so it's, uh, it's like a machinist type work, but uh, supposedly done with hand tools. And of course, it's never been demonstrated. Well, see, I, I, me personally, I don't, I don't agree with the hand tool thing. I, I kind of tend to lean towards that, that big giant saw on a wheel that they, that they uh, um, look, you know, they think that they used, you know, where they made basically a big giant bandsaw. And um, and they were able to cut the larger stones in a straight line. I would I would say that that's more a little bit more ingenuitive thinking, uh, you know, realistic. Yeah, that, that makes think? more sense. There's also some um, what they call boat pits that would be where that big blade would have been, and that's certainly a possibility. That's much more reasonable than the the stories that Egyptologists tell, which are just nonsensical. Yeah, you know, and I've seen, um, you know, uh, circular board out, um, uh, you know, pieces where they say that they had taken, you know, either a stone or, or uh, something else where they had made sort of like a saw and um, used diamonds to uh, help cut. And they would, turn, you know, turn it, basically. It's just like when you when you take a miter saw or something or you take one of those saws, you're going to make a hole in your door for a doorknob. And we just have that round uh, piece that goes on the front and it just drills that borehole. And it's kind of like that. So, you know, I've seen some of these things that are, you know, sound like, you know, people could have made this stuff, uh, but not with, like you said, the hand tools sitting there chiseling away, like, you know, like they're up on Mount Rushmore and chiseling away the, you know, presidents with bronze tools. So, right. You know, I, I, I don't agree with that. What do you think, right? No, uh, they certainly had a method to cut stone that uh, was uh, powerful and fast and very accurate. And those characteristics uh, exclude using hand tools. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it's, uh, you know, it's amazing. I think that it's a lost technology of the Great Pyramid. And my first book is titled Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid. But yeah. if a person like you and I understand that it can't be done with using hand tools like Egyptologists say it it could be done or was done, if we understand that they're wrong, then our understanding is more sophisticated than uh, the entire science of Egyptology. I have a rather poor uh, opinion of Egyptology and I think that it is the uh, greatest hindrance to understanding ancient Egypt. Well, you know, and and I don't understand why they wouldn't just, you know, embrace the idea that, like you just said, that there's a, a lost technology. You know, that when we, we've talked before, I think even on our last show, the, about the, you know, the light bulb and the and them having power, electricity. I mean, we've seen the Baghdad battery, right? So, oh, yeah. you know, and I don't think they just use that for, you know, for, um, you know, engraving or, or whatever, putting gold filigree on, on top of things. I think that they, you know, they might have used that for other things, other purposes. 
and you know it's possible that 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 one thing was a, a light bulb that was inside you know described on the on the walls and so that you know if that is the case then now i mean we're also i'm making a jump here and assuming that that was a light bulb but just them having electricity for any reason would suggest that they were a little more innovative than just using chisels and hammers right oh that's true they uh with uh, baghdad batteries you can do electroplating yeah. so that's that's rather sophisticated Right. To, to say the least. But also, uh, they could do lighting with electricity, power machinery, also use it for um, medical purposes, and a whole host of purposes. So I think that the builders of the Great Pyramid were geniuses and developed high technology. A lot of that is missing now, but we do have uh, the evidence of the Great Pyramid to indicate it was from a very sophisticated culture. Agreed, and you know, I like that you said that to power machinery because that harkens back to what we were just talking about with that big giant circular saw. That who knows, maybe that was power assisted instead of just driven by pachyderms or people riding their little bicycles. <laughs> you know <what> I, mean? <laughs> I do, I do know what you mean, but uh, certainly a lot of explanations of the construction of the Great Pyramid are not accompanied with uh, demonstrations. Egyptology is the the best example of that but uh, uh, the research that the direction of my research is uh, much of how I think the Great Pyramid was built has been demonstrated in modern times so that's that uh, is is kind of neat yeah and we'll get into that too <clears throat> pardon me I'm having phlegm problems this morning <clears throat> not sure why but I apologize for that so yeah, I want to go down that road as well because, you know, I, I think we, I think we really need to, and, and you're the person to do that, ring out, you know, the a lot of this because, you know, this is what you're doing. You're, you're, you have dedicated a, a, a large portion of your life to uh, the understanding and, and trying to solve this mystery in a, in a very um, nonsensical, you know, or sensical, I should say, approach. But, a, you know, a nonsensical approach to history, because we know that I believe I agree with you that what they claim isn't possible. Right. Well, Egyptologists, certainly uh, yeah. it's it's not possible to do the things that they say was done, especially in a production line manner. It simply is wrong. Yeah. There's errors in their books. Uh, and uh, the Egyptologists say they know about ancient Egypt. So then they can't say that there's an unknown technology. They just make up these stories on how it was done. But uh, it, it can't be demonstrated, just like a cow jumping over the moon. You know, you can talk about it and read about it in literature, but it, it's, not, it's not been demonstrated. So, uh, yeah, don't, don't believe anything Egyptologists tell you. They are a science that is in crisis because of their poor research uh, techniques right and they yeah and then they you know like um what's his name um always tells people that if you think you know anything about aliens you're stupid you know and he just won't go down yeah zooming your watch yeah yeah he won't go down the road of anything he just refuses to believe or listen to or even speak about anything out of what they uh have decided is the narrative right uh, that's right. It's uh, 
they, they have a uh, kind of a calcified story that they tell generation after generation about, uh, you know, tombs and ramps and back, strong back muscles. And uh, they, I think that they'll never change, just like phrenology, the uh, science about the bumps on your head that uh, tell, talk, you know, that indicate character traits. Uh, those correlations were uh, false, and but phrenology never changed. It went away instead of adapting. And I think much of what Egyptologists talk about, certainly about pyramid construction, will cause Egyptology to be rejected by uh, the by regular people who have open minds. Well, you know, guys, anybody out there who's, who's uh, well, first of all, those of you who are watching this video, you're seeing, um, I have a slideshow up, I forgot to tell you, Stephen, and it's your books awesome. and your stuff, yeah, it's those pictures of you and your books and stuff, so they can they can see where to find your uh, um, website and your books and stuff like that, so those of you who are listening to this on podcast, you can't see those visuals, so it's a good thing that uh, Stephen had brought those up at the beginning there, so <clears throat> for those of you who have some doubts about what we're saying here. Let me just shine a little bit of light um, that has has actually come to fruition since the last time Stephen and I talked, because that was been like, oh, I got it last year or something. Yeah, in a so, little bit. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me run down this, and then I want to get your opinion on this uh, as well. And this is proof of what he's saying, and I want to show, and I want you, to, you guys to understand that let's just look at just not too long ago, last month I think it was now, um, Egypt opened up that new museum for King Tut's tomb and all of the art exhibits from that tomb. And that for the very first time since the uh, since the dig, when they pulled all of the stuff out of the, the King Tut's tomb, for the very first time, everything has been reunited under one roof. And I watched the documentary on that and Egyptologists we're seeing for the very first time in their life some of these objects because they had been bagged up, boxed up, and locked away and never even studied or looked at again until they pulled them out. And I watched these people, and, and what's his name? Awaz was one of them. I watched them get so excited when they were actually seeing these items for the very first time. I was seeing them for the very first time in my life. At the same time, they were, and they're supposed to be the experts on everything Egypt, and they didn't even know what these objects looked like or what they were, and they were going, oh, look at the details here, and look at this, and they were like children for the first time, like they had just got into a brand new um, you know, room, and they just had dug up, and it, you know, so here's these people who claim they know everything that's going on, and that, you know, that Stephen can't be right about his theory, because they know it all. Yet, they have never seen 90% of the artifacts that came out of King Tut's tomb. Not one person alive today until last month. What's your take on that, Stephen? Well, it's interesting. Certainly, Egyptologists seem to want to tell a story instead of examining artifacts, if you will, in a lot of ways. And Egyptology also wants to tell a story instead of show a demonstration and that uh, demonstrations are the foundation of uh, the scientific method so uh, I agree with you that it's it's just a bizarre experience to see that type of thing uh, you know experts that 
that don't don't aren't familiar with the things that they're uh, experts about. So uh, that that's an interesting uh, little story you told. Yeah, and you know, and it, it, I watched it unfold. And as it was unfolding, I thought to myself that exact thing. What I just said, wow, these people who are supposed to be the experts on they're the ones who drive the narrative and telling the story of King Tut and what happened to him and all of the stuff that went on like a drama it plays out like a, a great, uh, um, you know, um, drama that you would see on television and or a book or something or a movie. Oh, it's, I'm sure they're going to make the movie about it again, you know, because of this. But I'm listening to all this and then I'm watching these people for the very first time in their lives put, touch these objects and, and see them. And they were discussing them. And I'm like, wow. And, and how much of what they said could change from what they're what they're seeing right now? You know what I mean? The narrative that they drove about sure. this sure. person, you know, yeah. is it, gonna, it did look like it didn't though. It, it more painted uh, Tutankhamun to be more of a warrior um, than the boy king, like they said, and they actually said that on the show. So that kind of changed the narrative a, a little bit of what their story was—that he was the boy king. And now they see all of this and say, "No, this is not the burial site of a boy king. This is the burial site and knowledge and stories." Because they always have the the you know the the uh, pictographs and the and the uh, you know p- telling the story it shows that he was you know uh, leading an army, killing people, uh, winning wars. Now whether that was all just hype, I mean, come on, we we know that. A lot of that stuff was just hype, but you know you have to take a little bit of it with a grain of salt and say, well, some of it had to have been kind of true, right? So you, you, they had no idea until they looked at it, and that rose a lot of questions in my mind. And I wanted to point that out to to the world uh, that Stephen is is going and looking at this stuff, and you know he's not looking at it through the eyes of of romance; he's looking at it through the eyes of a scientist, right? Well, yes, there's two ways to analyze artifacts, and one is its its cultural interpretation, how it fits into the culture, but also uh, how, how it was made, the technological um, aspects of a artifact. And uh, I, for some reason, I focus on the technical issues, like how it was made, if you will, like there's a dagger that is associated with the artifacts of King Tut, and they say that it was made out of meteorite. The the metal was meteorite. I've heard that, but uh, that's interesting to me, uh, more so than what the what the knife represents or its uh, religious interpretation or whatever. So uh, the Great Pyramid is similar to the items in the King Tut's tomb in that the Great Pyramid is an artifact, if you will, something that you can study and look at and try to figure out how it was built. Egyptologists will say, oh, you want to know how the Great Pyramid was built? Well, let's look at this other pyramid, you know, like the Step Pyramid that's made out of much smaller stones. And uh, we'll see how these small stones were moved and then extrapolate that to the Great Pyramid. No, if you want to know how the Great Pyramid was built, it's okay to actually look at the Great Pyramid and examine that direct physical evidence and come up with an explanation for how that structure was built. Right, agreed. I mean, that you, you kind of have to do that. To, and I agree with you because you can't look at something that was built, and we know it was thousands of years later, 
and say that it was exactly, well, the way they built that must have been the way they built that. And I agree with you. The stones are, you know, uh, three quarters the the larger on the on the on the uh, uh, Giza, uh, uh, you know, the big pyramid. And the, the other ones, the other pyramids are, are far smaller stones. So you can't look at that and say, well, that, they must have built them exactly the same. They just did it on a smaller scale and a grander scale. Well, you still haven't proved that, right? Oh, that's true. I uh, I do I make a lot less assumptions than a lot of other people do. I don't even assume that the people that made the Great Pyramid was the same culture as the people that made the Big Pyramid right next to it. And uh, so I don't even make that assumption. Or even when the Great Pyramid was built, that's not the focus of my uh, research. Although I think it was built much earlier than Egyptologists. Uh, say so so yeah and if you want to study uh, or find out how the Great Pyramid was built it's okay to actually uh, examine the Great Pyramid right agreed and and now for those of you who are who are thinking you know you're casting doubt now about the age of the pyramid and maybe you know uh, I agree with what Stephen said and let's let's run down that road a little bit and here's and here's a way of of looking at the timelines guys and, and, and Stephen you and I have talked about this before now, let's look at right next to the Great Pyramids, <clears throat> pardon me, is the Sphinx. Now, we know that the, the Sphinx is sitting on the bedrock, so we do know that water is leaching up from underneath, and that's doing damage to the Sphinx. But that doesn't explain the water erosion on the Sphinx itself and on the quarry surrounding the Sphinx. Now, why is that important? That's important for very, uh, very big reasons, because if you're going to date something and the Egyptologists claim that the Sphinx was built by was it Khufu or Khafre which, which one built it they said they claim well it's certainly up to scholarly debate but they think that the great the Sphinx was built contemporaneous with the uh, Great Pyramid and the other structures on the Giza Plateau within a generation uh, or so of each other so that's the conventional thought by Egyptologists yeah which just can't play out for a number of reasons. For first of all, that that water erosion has yes. happened over a, a great amount of time. If it was, in fact, they claim it was the river that had came down through the valley and that used to flood there, the Nile would flood there, and that that's what caused that water erosion. And that the reason it stopped was because the pyramid was built and it changed uh, the that changed the water uh, away and it, it blocked away, so it didn't flood the Sphinx anymore. I disagree with that, and I think you do too, right? Oh, I do. Yeah. Uh, the uh, work by uh, Dr. Robert Schock, uh, who's a geologist, mm -hmm. indicates uh, that uh, the Sphinx is much older than uh, people contend, uh, or, you know, that the Egyptologists contend because of the water erosion. And uh, so, but a lot of people think now that the Great Pyramid was much older than Egyptologists say for. <laughs> you know that they that the two were built uh, within the same time frame, the Sphinx and the Great Pyramid. So that's a possibility. But what's what's interesting to me is to figure out who didn't build the Great Pyramid, and that helps with understanding the age of the Great Pyramid. Egyptologists know uh, they say they know all about how the ancient Egyptians. So if that's the case, then uh, uh, they should know how 
the, the uh, Great Pyramid was built, but Egyptologists can't even make a single uh, casing stone like those that are at the Great Pyramid. So uh, it looks like to me that uh, the agricultural society known as Ancient Egypt was unable to build the Great Pyramid. So that means its age had to be older. So that's, that's how I uh, analyze the age of the Great Pyramid. Well, you know, and, and there was, and I don't remember who, uh, I saw this, <clears throat> I saw this on one of the documentaries, and it was sort of an off-the-cuff thing. I don't know if you and I have talked about this before, uh, but uh, when they were talking about the ancient Egypt, and there was this old man, and the, this guy was talking to this old man about the, you know, who built the pyramids, and he said, he said to them, well, you know, in history, we know that it was the, the you know, the ancient Egyptians and the, that they just built that, you know, and it was, you know, 10,000 years ago or, or whatever. And, you know, we, we, we know this and that, that our society goes back and our history goes back to, to then. And the old man looked at him and said, see, it goes back a, a lot further than that, far, far further than that. And he, he said, well, that's what history tells. And he says, history only remembers the last time okay history only remembers the time before this one there were many times before that and that the sphinx and the pyramid he said that were far older than anyone would know but that the people in the in the um, uh, egyptologists wouldn't even listen to him so he's claiming that the people themselves have heard stories and that they have been told stories down through history that it came from an age far longer ago than people think, you know, maybe 75,000 years ago, the Sphinx. And the Egyptologists just will not have that. Oh, certainly. The, uh, the Great Pyramid probably was built before the last catastrophe. So that would be the before the last time, if you will probably before either the biblical flood mm -hmm. or the uh, last asteroid hit or the before the last plague or or you know political upheaval but it was certainly built much older than uh, you know uh, Egyptologists contend so uh, that's that's quite interesting well and you know in, in looking at that as well like you're saying that we know that the the flood um, theory because I've I've researched that and it and it's told all over the world not just in the you know not just in the uh, Egypt or, or you know Africa North Africa and, and South Asia it's told everywhere on uh, almost every culture that there was a, a flood and we also know that the Strongs uh, Stephen and Evan Strong down in Australia have uh, they have their book uh, talking about seventy five thousand years ago when there was a super volcano that erupted and um, almost wiped out all of the human race. And so we know that, that they were flourishing. Humans were flourishing before that. So there's many documented times in history that people are showing that we humans have lived on this planet for a lot longer than we think. You know, the Christian view when I was a kid was we were 3,000 years old. That was as far back as they believed we were. And they've now acknowledged that up to about 12,000 years. But we know now that it's far. This planet is far older. And the people here, we found cities, uh, you know, down underwater that are that are far older than that. So why would it be impossible and so hard to believe that the Sphinx and just the one pyramid could have possibly been 
a culture that has long since disappeared off the earth. Am I right? That's right. Uh, certainly, uh, that's uh, something I agree with. There's no uh, formal writing inside the Great Pyramid, so uh, most all the temples and tombs in Egypt have writing all over them. So certainly it's a different architectural design with a different purpose. So the, uh, you know, the Great Pyramid is not a tomb, and uh, it's not a religious structure by any means. It's m much different than that. Right, and, there, and there's so many other differences as well. Not only is there no hieroglyphics in the, um, in the walls in there, there's also no soot marks that would indicate that they used flames for light. So they had to have used something else for illumination. Uh, that I mean, that's just what would be the case, guys. If you guys uh, know anything about fire, you know, if you go to a cave where people had a, a fire in the cave, the ceiling of the cave is going to have soot all over it. If you go some of these uh, other pyramids and temples do have those marks where they came in with flame torches and walked through to see. But then in the Great Pyramid, none of that. And that's very odd for uh, Egypt and what they did as a norm, right? Oh, uh, that's correct. And, uh, they, you know, the Great Pyramid wasn't built uh, for people to, you know, do initiations inside the Great Pyramid and have, you know, uh, torches and that type of thing with the smoke on the ceiling. It wasn't built for that. It had a, certainly a different purpose. It was uh, more of a machine than some sort of a religious structure. Right. Now, let's let's go down that road. Let's talk about that. Now, if it was a machine, what, you know, what's your idea, what's your take on what you think it might have been used for? Well, uh, I'm glad you asked me that. Mm -hmm. I think it was a machine, and it, and it had a purpose, which was to uh, transform poverty into prosperity, and it transformed hunger into uh, a full belly. And it transformed the desert into a garden. And it did, it did all of those things because the Great Pyramid was built, I think, for a single purpose. And that purpose was to pump water. Right. And, and see, now we'll, we'll get into that. And, and, and let's start with, now, why would the people, now, let's logically, people, you guys think that the, 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 that area has always been a desert and we know that it that it wasn't so if you look back in time there was a time prior to the the desert that's there now when that area was a lush green land that grew food now let's let's say for the sake of argument guys that there was a society of people that were living and they were flourishing and they were very large and they were able to sustain food and crops, and then something in the climate changed on the planet, and now what was lush green forest was now be drying up without water and becoming a desert. Now, necessity is the mother of invention. We know that. That's an American saying. Okay, so now, why is it so unplausible that a group of people had a problem and needed to feed their people and decided maybe we need to make something that we can draw water here to us now because the Nile has changed. It's not flowing close by. 
and now we're not getting the rain that we were getting before that flooded the land that allowed us to uh, grow our crops. And why is that so unbelievable that a group of people further back in time designed that to save their lives? We would, right? Oh, certainly. The largest structure in North America is the Grand Coulee Dam. And that dam uh, generates electricity, but it also is a self-powered water pumping system. It irrigates about a million and a half acres. It's the largest and most expensive structure built in North America when built. So uh, in the uh, Washington state on the Columbia River. So uh, they built a large water pump. And in fact, the uh, High Aswan Dam is the uh, keystone of a uh, large irrigation system. They use the electricity from the High Aswan Dam to uh, power water pumps in the Valley of the Nile. So in modern times, uh, they built a large structure in the Valley of the Nile, and they use that to pump water. And in ancient times, in the Valley of the Nile, they built a large structure and used that to pump water. Right, and that would be the pyramid, right? That is correct, the Great Pyramid Water Pump. And I wrote uh, uh, two books about it, and my second book describes uh, how that uh, water was used and all of that. So. Well, and see, now, guys, and, and now think about that. For those of you who are naysayers out there, that, you know, well, that can't be why. There's no reason to believe that. that would, the explanation and the, and, the, and the other side of the coin that the Egyptologists are, are telling you doesn't fit with the own, their own history and their own narrative. So, so they're telling you a story that they, first of all, can't prove. Second of all, haven't tried to prove, like Stephen said. They, they claim they know how the pyramid was built, yet they refuse to actually move a stone, right? Uh, true, true. So it, it does, the Great Pyramid doesn't look like a tomb, and it was also a very ineffective tomb, if it was one. How do long, open uh, passages and stones that pivot protect a pharaoh's uh, body? Uh, no, there's no coherent explanation for that. So it's not uh, it's not a very good tomb. Just like a a toothpick isn't a very good pickup truck. Right. You know, a pencil isn't a very good wrench, and the Great Pyramid uh, isn't a very good tomb. So it's you know it was certainly ineffective to protect the the pharaoh's uh, body. So it's it's not a tomb. No, it can't be. And and there was never a body found uh, in in the in the the king's chamber in the in the sarcophagus, right? Now that is true. There's no uh, original burials found in any of the uh, pyramids in Egypt. Uh, so, uh, but uh, Egyptologists say, oh, the uh, in ancient times people stole all of those religious and gold and treasure before we. We Egyptologists could steal it, so it's uh, you know they just they have a story for everything. Now the, let's run down that little rabbit hole for a second. Now let's assume that that is true and that all the pyramids were raided in, in antiquity before anybody was able to get a hold of the stuff, and they claim they know that. <clears throat> and yet, no no one has ever found a single artifact that has surfaced in the history of the world. Am I right? That came from any of those? 
Well, there's certainly no artifact inside the Great Pyramid that indicates it was for a burial purpose right. or that it was for religious purpose or to unify ancient Egypt. There is a box inside the Great Pyramid. That's direct physical evidence. Yeah. A copper, also known as a sarcophagus in the king's chamber, yeah. that's direct physical evidence. Its interpretation is certainly much, much different than than that so uh some people say oh it's it's for uh you know the uh, pharaoh's body but uh the uh, uh, sarcophagus for king tut is much different so you know they're, they're more different than alike yeah well and, and here's the thing too now um and for those of you who are watching the video, you're seeing the images that are here. There is an image that I have up there of uh, Stephen laying in it, laying in the in the in the uh, coffin or the sarcophagus uh, inside the big pyramid. Now that I, I think we discussed this before, that people have told me that they went in there and that it was not big enough to fit the the king. Yet Stephen in the picture is clearly laying down, stretched out, and he's fitting. And how tall are you? I'm six foot, so. So. Uh, but yeah, you can lay down in there. Uh, you can lay down in the uh, coffer. It's, uh, you know, a person can fit in there. Some people say the Ark of the Covenant can fit in there, you know, but a person can can fit in a refrigerator box. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a it's a coffer. That was its intent. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. So so it would fit. Somebody would fit in there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there was what it was designed for. Now. In in your findings, what's your theory as to why that box is there, why that coffer is there? I think that it's part of a water pumping system. The king's chamber at one time was half full of water and then half full of air, like a, uh, a pressure chamber. <clears throat> and the coffer was part of a mechanism to keep the, uh, the air and water... Uh, ratio at, at the proper uh, you know the proper amount because air is soluble in water so if you can't reintroduce more air in the king's chamber during the pumping process then that chamber will, will become waterlogged so I think it was like a float system that controlled a valve to introduce more air and, and it's it's quite technical but my uh, book talks about the technical aspects of how the Great Pyramid pumped water. Well, and it would have to be, you know, technical uh, in, in not just because, you know, uh, to, to confuse people, but for an actual pump that would be pumping water, you know, it's, it's not going to be something that is going to be simple. Otherwise, everybody would have designed a water pump long, long, long ago, right? Oh, that's true. It's uh, certainly different than uh, water pumps we have now. You know, it's uh, quite quite unique, in fact. The original builders were geniuses, and they had a very profound understanding of physics and the physical world around them. I think that they used properties of water that we don't, similar to Victor Schrauberger's concept of implosion. I think the uh, subterranean chamber uh, caused water to move in a whirlpool and they utilized the uh, property of implosion for water and that was part of the pumping process so it's quite 
quite uh, technical. It's a technical structure, a 45-story skyscraper built in ancient times that had a very technical purpose. But uh, there's a lot of information about that in my second book and second documentary showing the features of the Great Pyramid and how they relate to a functional purpose to pump water. Right. Now, now let's ring that out a little bit. How, how would that work? Can you explain um, yes. the, how, how that works? I'm sure you have done a documentary and a book about it. Explain to the people so that they, they go, oh, wait a minute. Now you're just, you know, you're just reaching. No, he's not just reaching, guys. <laughs> go ahead, give them the details of how that pump actually worked. Can you do that? I can. We think that uh, water entered the Great Pyramid water pump at the upper end of the sub of the descending passage. That passage goes down to the uh, subterranean chamber. Other researchers contend that water was available at the Great Pyramid and that water entered the upper end of the descending passage. Christopher Dunn is one, but there's other researchers as well. And that water moved in a whirlpool in the subterranean chamber and uh, that's depicted in our documentary how that works and ultimately caused water to move up through the grotto and then to the lower end of the uh, grand gallery and then water uh, was caused to move up the grand gallery they used electrolysis in the grand gallery to create uh, uh, both hydrogen and oxygen gases. Those gases combined are quite volatile, and when ignited, they believe it or not, they ultimately create a vacuum. So that's uh, there's a link to our to that process on our website on our links page. But that vacuum helped lift water up in the grand gallery, and then that, through uh, automatic valves that vacuum was broken and that grand gallery had about a 300 ton piston a water piston in that chamber that moved down and caused water to go through the horizontal passage to the queen's chamber which uh, compressed air in the upper half of that chamber when you add additional water so that compressed air ultimately uh, moved water to the king's chamber and water exited out the upper ends of the king's chamber vents. And then they can take that water and basically, um, you know, irrigate the land and, and just run it wherever they wanted to run it, right? Yes. they uh, From the upper ends of the king's chamber vents, we believe that there were passages similar to vents in the casing stones. So those, uh, the, so then they created a high head, if you will, mm -hmm. for this water that ultimately went down to the point of use. It could have been in uh, to for a whole host of purposes, like create compressed air or use the compressed air to create static electricity, power machinery, irrigation, uh, municipal purposes, uh, and a whole a whole host of of reasons. The Great Pyramid just pumped water. But a hydroelectric dam, all it does is make electrons go through a wire. But <clears throat> how those electrons are used is quite varied. And the same, the same thing is true with the Great Pyramid. How the water was used was a whole host of purposes. See, and I think that that's something that people need to, you guys can look that stuff up, look up these hydroelectric uh, uh, dams. 
And you, you can see, just like Stephen had talked about not too long ago when he was describing that, that we have done the same thing. We just didn't make a pyramid. We've done the same thing by utilizing the waterways and making a dam and then having the water go through and turn the turbines and generate electricity. But not only that, we also use that water to to uh, create pressure to actually uh, irrigate the land so that we could then grow crops. So we're doing it all over just the United States, but all over the world. So we're doing that already with, with dams, right? Well, they didn't have a, a natural waterway right there, so they had to bring the water in. So if you're having to bring the water in, that's a different um, mechanism that you're going to need. Now, uh, the, if you turn on the water in your house, how do you think that water in your house comes out that faucet? comes out that faucet because there is a air pressure pump that is pumping the water similar to the idea that Stephen just talked about for the that the mechanism of the pyramid would in fact be we have a very small uh, unit somewhere that is pumping that water to your house and it's doing the same thing basically that the pyramid would be doing by by pumping in, in a mechanism doing exactly what he just described only that one was designed with just water and we use a piston more than you know an actual piston instead of a, a natural piston but they just use the water and just and it's very plausible if you understand how that works and you should look that up i would advise you to do that because once you do you're going to then think about what steven just said and you're going to say you know that's actually plausible far more plausible than there was a a king buried there that, that got kidnapped you know <laughs> Yes. Well, the Great Pyramid, we think, was infrastructure for the civilization that built it. Yeah. That Great Pyramid was built not at a high cost, but it was a wise investment because it provided a huge return on investment. And that return on investment was all of the uses for the pumped water from the Great Pyramid infrastructure. So I think that the Great Pyramid uh, was built to actually help people in a tangible way, not not to point to something or not to, uh, you know, for a religious pur purpose or to, to somehow protect a pharaoh's carcass or any of that, but that it was a, a, a real machine that pro provided a real uh, help for the people that built it. I agree. That makes a lot more sense that it was uh, something built out of necessity for their society. Now, if, guys, if you want examples of that, not only just the dams we talked about, but look around in history at all the different societies all over the, the world that we know are old, and you're going to find that they had also had to, had to adapt to the land that they lived on, and they also had to find out, look at the Romans and their, you know, their agricultural system with, the, with their, uh, uh, their waterways. The most phenomenal to this day, people come from all around the world to go and see these big aqueducts. Am I right? You are correct. That's probably one of the best examples of infrastructure for civilizations. But but they also had uh, waste removal. Yep. They also have roads uh, and, and all of that. And in modern times, we have like uh, the power grids, you know, with dams and all of that. So all of that is prosperity that uh, that helps uh, helps our civilization prosper right. and uh, growth. Just just growth. You know, they built they built these freeways all over the United States, and it costs money and everything. 
but can you imagine the commerce and and the uh, the money that it generated and the uh, Erie Canal is another example you know to move uh, grain crops uh, products and it uh, provided a tremendous uh, return on investment the return on investment for the Erie Canal was so high that they they and it was so efficient that they kept lowering the cost uh, to use it uh, to almost nothing so it, uh, and then the prosperity was just phenomenal that's one reason you know uh, all, all of these things are just tremendous so that's what the Great Pyramid was was a prosperity machine and infrastructure to uh, promote uh, wealth and prosperity for the civilization that built it. I agree. And, you know, sometimes that's exactly what you said. You know, you have to do something no matter the cost because the return on the investment is going to be a million fold. And that it would be a reason to build a structure that large, just like you said, with the, the, the dams and the highways and the roadways. Think about guys in history when we uh, got the railroads. That to us right now is an antiquated uh, thing but at the time that united the the like like Stephen just said with the highways it united the ability to take commerce from one end of the country to the other and back again and that created a, that sustained this country until we started building all the roads to to then travel once we had the vehicles that could move a lot faster than you know the horse could walk and the, because of that, we built our entire nation to what it is today, right? That's true. That's true. And uh, so, uh, so that's what the Great Pyramid was. And we, our nonprofit foundation, is dedicated to understanding both how it was built, but also uh, how, why it was built. But we developed that ancient lost technology uh, for our modern but very troubled world. Yeah. Now let's let's get into because we we haven't covered this at all. Let's get into the the lock system to the to build the pyramid now it, now Stephen has done this investigation on what the pyramid was for and when it was possibly built and and then people say well you still haven't discussed how oh no yeah Stephen has we just haven't covered it yet so <laughs> let's talk about how they would have built that pyramid because there's all these we talked touched on it early on in the show about the ramp system and and those things and how they weren't plausible, but we didn't touch on what Stephen's theory is as to how they could have built the pyramid, not having a bunch of machinery, and that's uh, that's another reason why he's on here today is because this is his latest documentary and latest book. Am I right? And this yes. is where I want to get into this because this is. Um, this right here in and of itself is something that I think personally is very, 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 I said that three times, guys, very plausible, an idea, and would actually work. Out of everything I've heard, out of every uh, uh, invention, every theory of how the pyramid was built, no one is able, ever able to say, well, we could actually do this and we're showing you and we're doing it. Okay, until now. And this is why you guys need to listen to what Stephen has to say. So, Stephen, let's get into the lock system and what that means, how that works, and how they could have built the pyramid sitting there on the Giza Plateau. Well, thank you for the kind words about that. But, yes, uh, the Great Pyramid was built using water locks and barges. And what is that? Explain uh, what that is. Okay, a water lock is uh, just like a short 
canal that has uh, doors on both ends so uh, a ship can go in the water lock and they they shut the doors and add additional water and it raises the ship up to the next higher uh, canal or the next higher water lock the Erie Canal that I mentioned is has a lot of water locks as does the Panama Canal down there in Panama so uh, the Suez Canal right the Suez Canal does not have water locks believe it or not oh, it it, does? It, I was unaware no. of that yeah it just uh, it's without water locks it just goes if you oh, will well, I did not know that okay so yeah. well okay so let's go ahead and, and so how does the water lock you now it raises it up to the next level and then and then you would move over to a new lock and and then they would close the doors again and then they would put water in that and it raise you up to another level and that's how you go from one altitude to a, a, a higher altitude or the other way around go from a higher altitude to a lower altitude right that is correct and uh, they are a, a simple yet very uh, profound uh, tool if you will to uh, move heavy payloads in fact water locks are not primitive they're the 21st century technology of choice to move our heaviest objects the Panama Canal has just been expanded by making larger water locks you know they didn't put a railroad system in or whatever but uh, they used water locks they didn't they didn't use a magic wand or or uh, worship crystals or anything, you know. They, so it's it's a good system, and we think that uh, stones on barges went from the Nile River all the way up to the building site. So uh, the first stones that were set in place were the casing stones for the first level, if you will. They're cemented together, watertight, and that would make a square wall up at the construction site. Well, the original builders could uh, had delivered water to the Giza plateau and fill that pond with uh, water that that enclosure with water to make a pond so stones on barges went from the river all the way up and into that pond so the they brought up the interior stones and moved them from the barge into the pond and when that pond was filled with stones, the first level of the Great Pyramid was completed. And that process continued, building the Great Pyramid level by level, using uh, first the casing stones for that level, and then they add additional water for the pond, and then they would bring the stones up for that level. So we have a video series that people can watch for free on our website, and it it has a lot of animation showing how stones were moved and set in place using barges and water locks. Now, when, when we have proof that the Nile at the time, they had shifted the Nile and they had a, a literally the water came right up to very, very close to the work site and they had a boat dock there. And that's been proven, right? Yes, there is certainly you can word search great pyramid and harbor and you'll come up with a lot of research uh, about a harbor right near the uh, great pyramid and those sun barges that are quite large uh, were uh, take were taken apart they were built to be disassembled and placed right at the base of the great pyramid so there's a lot of um, evidence for ships and water on the Giza plateau Right, and they have evidence of 
uh, remains of a couple of those barges, correct? The sun barges, yes. Yeah. Those are, uh, one has been uh, removed from the pit right by the Great Pyramid and is in a museum at the Great Pyramid. I've been there and saw it, the large ship. They reassembled it. And then there was another one, a, a twin almost, and that is being excavated and prepared for display. So, yeah, they're big, big ships, in effect, right there on the Giza Plateau. Kind of fascinating. Right. And these things, now, guys, you, when, when we say uh, ships, you guys think of, of, you know, in your head, automatically you think of the modern-day ship, which has this deep keel uh, because they're, they're sailing on the deep ocean. But the, these barges weren't that at all, were they? No, they were they were a little bit different than that. They were long and narrow with with lar with a large bow, uh, you know, pronounced uh, on the aft and the, the the front and the back of it, uh, a large protrusion, if you will, and a rope between those uh, the front and the back. So it was made made pretty sturdy, made to be disassembled. In our video series, we describe how those uh, sun barges, about 150 feet long, give or take, uh, the exact dimension doesn't matter, but they were, they were huge. And uh, we think that they were like floating cranes and floated on that pond I described. And uh, imagine workers on the barge going to the front of the barge, which would tip the nose down, the bow, and so a rope would connect to one of the stones on one of the barges that came up the water locks. So then the workers would move to the back of that barge and it would tip the barge up, lifting the stone off of the barge. And then they would move the barge to where the stone needed to go and the workers would walk to the front of the barge and set the stone down into the pond. The process is probably faster doing it than describing it, if you will. So water locks are fast and powerful, and uh, using barges is a very systematic and uh, method that has production line efficiencies that, again, are described in my book and documentary in our video series that's on our website. Right. And, and see now, guys, this explains the technology that it would take that would that could work to build the pyramid by moving these very large blocks. And it, and it would work. And they have the proof that these sun barges existed. And truly, the sun barges wouldn't have been something that they would have been sailing up and down the Nile, so it wouldn't really have been something that they would uh, take out to the ocean because, the, you know, it wasn't designed for that. So we had clearly, in history, have something tangible to look at that was designed for a purpose that Stephen is describing, theorizing, and not really built for any other purpose. Am I right? Well, that's true. Uh, certainly the Egyptian or the people in the Nile uh, understood ships and barges. There's a hieroglyph that that shows two obelisks on a very large boat. So the Egyptians uh, put large boats, you know, in the Nile River and used them. But these ships 
we think were specific to the construction of the Great Pyramid, and that's why they're located uh, way up on the, uh, you know, the side of the Great Pyramid, just, you know, feet away from the Great Pyramid. So it's, it's quite interesting. It, and they were made to be disassembled, so we think that after they were, they were done being used, they were disassembled and then stored at the Great Pyramid. See, and, and I, I agree with that. And in history, if you look at, you know, there's another culture that was very similar to the construction of their uh, boats that they used, and that would be the, the Vikings. And now they didn't use them to, to uh, as a crane, but they had a low, shallow keel, mm -hmm. that they, and they were made to be able to disassemble. And that w allowed those people to explore out in the ocean, it was built similarly with the high uh, bow and high stern, and and they were able to not only sail in the oceans, but then sail upstream or downstream in in rivers, and if they got to a waterfall, they could stop, get out, pull the boat, disassemble it, carry it around down past the waterfall, put it back together, hop in the water, and continue to go. So we know from history that we humans have designed boats like that in the past in our history that we have uh now so why would that not be something that somebody would invent over in egypt to do exactly what stephen is describing am i right well that's true they do look kind of like uh the viking ships if you will mm -hmm. and uh we think that pond that i keep talking about was only about four and a half feet deep or so and when the erie canal was built it was about four and a half feet deep, but the barges on the Erie Canal could handle 70-ton payloads. So it is an effective method to move heavy payloads, and water locks is an effective method to lift heavy payloads. Right. So uh, uh, these water locks were almost anti-gravity devices, if you want to use that term, to float the stones almost effortlessly into place. Right. And, in you know, just like, you know, we have these big tugboats that push stuff around. If if they needed to and they wanted to, to maneuver that barge, it's only four and a half feet deep. You could have men standing in the water and they could just push the barge. Now, you got to remember, it's so buoyant. And you don't have to move on, you know, 700 tons of weight because the water is doing it for you. You just have to get the craft moving slightly and and because it's so you know it's completely different that's why we have these little tugboats that move these big giant cargo ships around to park them right similar yes uh they would be the sun barges uh would be very easy to move mm -hmm. with people standing in that pond my video series and book depicts that and i hope people uh take a look at that at our website but yes, it would be uh, would make it easy uh, easy to do. Water locks, of course, have been demonstrated for uh, you know millions of times a year. So at least it's uh, consistent with uh, reality that that water lo locks work. And there's certainly evidence on the Great Pyramid that uh, there's a profound link between the Great Pyramid and water. Now let me ask you. How, in in God's name, did you arrive at the the possibility that water locks were what they used? 
What what was how did what was your method? How did you get to that point where you said, "Hey, you know what? I think that they use these water logs." How did you get there? Well, I uh, have I have a technical background and quite interested in technology, more certainly more so than politics or religion or language or or clothing fashion or any of that or or hieroglyphs. So I'm interested in technology, but. Uh, I got interested in the Great Pyramid because it's like a, it exhibits some pretty high technology and built in ancient times. It's quite interesting. You know, almost everyone has an interest in pyramids. But uh, so then I did, uh, this is before the internet, I would go down to the library and read books uh, that was at the library. And at the time, it was primarily books by Egyptologists. And they talked about the big ramp. So I said, oh, okay, you know, there's a big ramp, whatever. Oh, and then I said to myself, all I need to know now is to see the demonstrations of these uh, physical processes of building the Great Pyramid. And I found out there are no demonstrations. It's all hooey that they made up. So then I read alternative books about the Great Pyramid being a weapon or the aliens for some reason came from Orion to stack stones into a pile so they could point the Great Pyramid could point to Orion. So I read all those books, but then I read this privately published book with very limited distribution called Pharaoh's Pump, written by Edward Kunkel. And he talked about water locks. He talked about how stones were moved from point A to B, and, and he was the impetus for the our direction of research, which uh, his book was published in 1962. And a lot of people haven't read it, and it's hard to follow. It's uh, you know, not, but it's uh, it's a brilliant book. So I I read that, and it it really uh, made an impression on me. Just like you you think that this direction of research has merit, and ultimately we uh, developed a nonprofit foundation with uh, myself and some other people. And uh, we've been been to Egypt. We're going back to Egypt in just uh, next year. We're taking doing a tour. I'm going to be a, a speaker on that tour. So that's how I got interested by reading a bunch of books that I didn't really. They didn't hit home with me. They they weren't consistent with the direct physical evidence or with physics. And then read Edward Kunkel's book. Uh, Pharaoh's Pump. We even named our foundation after his book. So we certainly give him credit, but we're uh, developing that direction of research even farther than it, than it had been developed when he first published his book. I'm sure he's he would be grateful uh, for that as well, because that was something he was passionate enough about to publish a publication, a book about it. So I, I think that you guys are doing him justice. That's, that's, you know, Thank really, you. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really cool. So now you said you're going to be on, on, uh, next, uh, next year going back on a, on a tour. This is one of those things that I'm not sure who's putting it on, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of it, um, where a bunch of people uh, you know, in the industry uh, get together and people can then uh, um, actually book uh, you know, the, the, the show and go there and actually see you and hear you speak, right? That's true. The uh, tour will be in early November 2020. That's uh, next year. It's a little more than a year away. Mm -hmm. 
and we will go to Egypt for a while. The exact itinerary is not determined yet, but we'll see all the ancient sites, including the Great Pyramid. I will be giving some exclusive lectures on that tour, and the tour will be uh, handled by the company called Sacred Sites Journeys, and their website is sacredsitejourneys.com, and uh, or just word search Sacred Site Journeys, and you will uh, find out uh, more about uh, that tour as uh, time develops. And those tours fill up pretty quickly, so if people are interested in going to Egypt, they need to contact that tour company, and they can uh, go right along with us, and we'll have a grand time. That tour company's been in operation for 25 years, and they are consummate professionals in uh, tours around the world, including Machu Picchu, you know, Ireland, and uh, Malta, and a few other places. So, yeah, they're, uh, they're a wonderful group that I'm uh, working with as a featured speaker on that tour. So, guys, uh, uh, you know, like he said, it's a little more than a year uh, in advance, so if you guys are interested out there and hearing this you're interested in going to Egypt and actually uh, being able to to see Stephen and listen to him speak and other people that are being there uh, that will be there I would suggest now is a good time to look into that and plan it because you have a little more than a year to save up your your jitneys and uh, <laughs> right and and uh, buy one of those packages I'm sure they have package deals right where they, they usually do uh, oh, yeah. where, where you, where you, you know, your guys are going to be going. I know that I used to uh, work with, uh, with, uh, um, Ildi who was working with, uh, Mimo Basha with Mimo tours, uh, which they're, they're not working together anymore, but, um, they, they had, uh, tours that would do exactly what, uh, Stephen was talking about as well. And they would, you guys would be on a, on a ship going up and down the Nile to go to these different sites. You know, they would yes. to Luxor and then they went to the great pyramids and other places and uh, you would have this tour with these people, and then you would then go back and hear them speak at different places where they would be speaking and planning to speak. And it would be like a, I don't know, I think they, I think they were doing either a, like a three-day and sometimes a seven-day uh, tour. So it, this is what Stephen's talking about. He's going to be part of this, and you guys would be able to, you know, at one point, I don't know if you, do you hang out with the crowd, or it's just the, you do the speaking, or you, like on, uh, are you on, they're with oh, them yeah. when they're doing the tour? Yeah, we all. We all go on that big boat in the uh, Nile River, and we all go to the uh, Great Pyramid together and other sites, and uh, you know discuss uh, things while we're right there. So it's yeah, it's a it's kind of an intimate tour, but uh, it, uh, it would be a trip of a lifetime. They say uh, you know travel is always expensive, but it's always worth it. So if you want to be involved in a trip of a lifetime. Go see those ancient sites that uh, everyone is interested in, in a tour that has a, it's kind of a group rate, so that helps, mm -hmm. and everything's taken care of, the uh, meals and the transportation and all, and all of that, and all you have to do is just go and soak it all in, so that's, that's I'm really excited, that's kind of the big event that's coming up in the near future. Yeah, so guys, and it's not really, truthfully, it's not that expensive. I've looked into a lot of that because I was uh, promoting those guys uh, for, for, and usually their packages are, 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 you know, not very expensive. They're, you know, you're looking at ranging from like three to $5,000 and you're, and you got like the whole week planned out. 
So it's yeah. it's not really as much as you would think. You know, some people, you know, especially if you like watch these these uh, game shows on television and they tell you that, you know, oh, a trip to the Bahamas is $15,000, you know, and that's just them inflating the price to make it look like the guy want, uh, had this big deal. Truth is, if you go through a some sort of travel agency or, or a company like this that's reputable and they have package deals, you find out that, you know, you got to pay your plane ticket and then once you get there, you you know, you pay that, you book that that thing and it's usually you know some of them just go as low as is twenty five hundred dollars and then upwards around five to six thousand depending on what hotels you stay into so guys that and these are usually really good deals luxury hotels and that oh, yeah. trip and it's not it's not uh that expensive and the food what I understand the Egyptian food is phenomenal oh yeah yeah they they have good food over there uh, but. Uh, and and the rooms are great, and you know it's uh, deluxe accommodations, uh, excellent travel, uh, you know from the motel to these sites and the river cruise. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's life changing these types of things. So I hope people uh, become interested and contact Sacred Sites Journeys to find out more about the tour. Agreed. Um, I would suggest guys definitely doing that because. You know, it's not going to be just uh, Stephen that's there, but that's a bonus in and of itself just to be able to hang out with him and go and, and listen to him talk about all the stuff where you're hearing here. But then you can actually see the things that he's talking about because you're there and you go, you know, you see the, the scope of it. And just like he said, 40, what was he saying? 47 foot, uh, a 47 story uh, as tall yeah, as the, uh, as the 40, About a 45 or so foot, uh, 45 story skyscraper built in ancient times. It was the tallest building in the world. For at least forty centuries. That's crazy. So, uh, and probably a lot longer than that. So, it's a it's a phenomenal thing. It's a wonder of the world. Yeah, it is. And it is. our our ancient ancestors had the genius and the gumption to uh, invest time and effort to build this stark, ultra modern uh, structure without ornamentation back in ancient times. And we are going to discuss why they did that. And why uh, why would they go to that effort, and uh, how it how it helped them? So it'll be an exciting tour. And now the the um, pyramid, the way we see it today, is a, a completely different from the way the pyramid appeared when it was when it was uh, uh, being used. Correct. That's correct. We think the Great Pyramid looked different before it was damaged by the hands of man and that it was covered with uh, precision cut casing stones from the bottom all the way to the top so uh, a side of the great pyramid you know that slopes looks like the uh, the uh, face of a hydroelectric dam if you will and uh, right. not that Uber dam smooth right yeah, it's be completely smooth and flat, like a what they call a gravity dam, and uh, the Grand Coulee Dam is one. It's uh, it's fake. Its face is very similar to the side of a, of the Great Pyramid. It's not the same exact angle, but uh, that's what that'll give you an idea of what uh, the Great Pyramid looked like. And uh, yeah, it was a starkly beautiful, uh, ultra modern structure that uh, had no ornamentation at all because it didn't need any. The engine in your car doesn't have any 
extra writing on it. You know, it has a few maybe part numbers, right. and it has no ornamentation on it because it's a machine. It doesn't need that stuff. The same with the Great Pyramid. It's it's a machine. Right, and it would need to, the face would need to be smooth, like you were saying, because the water, as you know, what you were saying, it ran down the face of it on, on one or two or some of the sides, right? We do. We think that uh, the one of the purposes of the water was that it uh, it went through these passages that were like vents in the casing stones, but those casing stones are gone. But we also think that there's a possibility that the Great Pyramid was used for uh, altering the weather, if you will. Uh, if you have the water going down opposite sides of the Great Pyramid and the heat uh, in the Nile Valley, that would develop a whirlpool, if you will, like a tornado, kind of. But that would draw water from the pond that was around the Great Pyramid. I know it's, it's kind of a bizarre uh, purpose, but we think that it was that it was a weather-altering machine, possibly, uh, for ancient times when, when they didn't have enough rain. So it would almost be to terraform uh, northern Africa, if you will, back in the day, and water would move from the uh, this uh, the enclosure wall around the Great Pyramid up, uh, lifted up with this whirlpool caused by the water going down the sides, and then uh, would you know add additional water to the atmosphere. So uh, that's just one exotic purpose for the use of the water. And uh, but uh, modern times, if we would build uh, like water pumps, we wouldn't we wouldn't do all that. We would just use it to generate electricity or for irrigation. So that's the modern uses for this ancient water pumping technology. Right, but but truthfully, we have all the technology to do all the things that you've described that that one giant unit did, right? I think so. Yes, so I really and, do. And, and you know, if you think about what we what we talked about before, where at one time, say, the population of, was living there when it was a lush green forest, uh, or at least a green grassland, rich and they could grow food and, and stuff there. So it was very, it was also more moist than a desert. Then it dries out because of something happening around the planet, which could have been some sort of catastrophe anywhere on the Earth that changed uh, the you know the climate. And we know that that happens all the time. We know that it happened many, many times on this Earth. We had a, you know, we had an ice age that just ended ten thousand years ago. So if you're living in North America anywhere, uh, if you were above Texas, you were in ice. We know that. Right. <laughs> right? Things change. What's that? Things change. That's for sure. Yeah. And people adapt to that change. They either uh, build a water pump or they uh, build. Um, roads or whatever they need to uh, to help the civilization that they're in and we think that this ancient technology can be re redeveloped and decentralized the production of electricity instead of having big pyramids in everybody's yard you just use polypropylene and PVC pipes some valves and some custom fabrication and make certainly much smaller than the Great Pyramid but uh, Cottage industries could build these in third world countries, and that's that's what we're trying to uh, develop is this ancient technology. 
we're using crowdfunding to uh, acquire a 3D printer and there's a link on our website if people want to become involved in our crowdfunding effort. See, and I think that that right there is is a really is really good because guys, he, Stephen, and the and the foundation, they're not just trying to prove that this worked. They're actually now looking into building these things for people so that so that we could use this technology like you just said and it's free right i mean what well, not free to to build but once you get this thing working it's sustainable right self-sustaining right yeah what i'm what the way i describe it is you would be able to generate the electricity you need from this pumped water but you wouldn't have to write a check every month to the electric company similar to a windmill you buy the windmill and when the windmill turns you are generating electricity so it is uh, there's no meter if you will that uh, is involved in the system so it's an efficient way to uh, pump water and then that pumped water and certainly in our modern first world would be used for the production of electricity it would be an alternative to hydroelectric dams an alternative to nuclear power and an alternative to uh, fossil fuel generated uh, power, power plants so it's uh, it's an interesting technology and I, I hope that we can bring it to fruition here in the uh, modern world I agree because you know that if you think about that if everybody was was doing that that's just like here's an example of that when people that are sailing there's a there's a group of people all over the world that call themselves cruisers and they sail around the planet for fun because that's what they want to do. And a lot of them use sailing vessels, ships, boats, and and uh, a lot of them use motors. But you know, everyone is required to have a motor in there now. And that way, if you get stranded out outside and there's no wind, you can turn on the motor and, and and motor. But these guys do the same thing. They have windmills and solar panels on the top of their uh, um, boats. Usually, in the on the stern, they have a, a solar panel array that's a, that they use basically as a cover so you can stand on the back of the boat and fish and you have you're in the shade and what is shading you is solar panels and then attached to those they have windmills so now when they're sailing or the air is the wind is blowing the windmills are turning and when the sun when the sun's out they're generating electricity and all of that runs all of their showers their water pumps and everything on board that vessel and and they have batteries to store the stuff uh, up so they're completely self-sufficient so we're doing that on boats guys already so what if your house was doing the same thing this is what Stephen is, is talking about generating this thing that would work for you for free to generate power and it would you could also use it to generate um, you know water pump right to, to pump water in your house right yeah you can pump water and you can do a whole host of things but uh, yeah it would be an alternative to uh, nuclear power and other things so uh I know that footprint would be like hardly anything. It would be rather, we were trying to work with a smaller footprint with PVC pipe and polypropylene containers. Certainly you don't have to build it out of stone, right. but you were adapting the ancient technology, but using modern uh, materials right. to uh, create our uh, device. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to create a device. But we're a humanitarian organization. We're not going to patent it. It's just going to be, uh, what do they call it, uh, open source. Yeah. And people can develop it to using the materials they have, even uh, 
like 55 gallon drums or whatever is available like in cottage industries throughout the world and help people uh, make marginal farmland productive because the cost of irrigation will be much lower but you know funding has always been a struggle because it's such a uh, um, unusual revolutionary idea just as saying that mold on bread could help sick people get well was at one time a revolutionary idea but uh, we're, we're you know doing doing what we can we're a small organization with some pretty big goals and hopefully people can get involved see our website contact us and uh, maybe they can be part of what we're doing right and see I was just gonna suggest that so those of you who are hearing this or seeing this depending on whether you're watching the the, the video show or listening to the podcast if you guys want to either just donate money to help this or, or see if there's something you can do to get involved, uh, Stephen, where, where can they go? Who can they contact? Well, it's best to view our website, but it's not about, it's not just about money. You know, everyone says, oh, you know, no. You know, if they, if they have expertise with uh, updating our website or making it better, or if they are animators for computer-generated animation, if they uh, want to uh, provide a link on their website back to ours, I mean, that, that helps. If they want to share some of our YouTube videos and, uh, you know, put it on their YouTube channel or anything. I mean, there's a lot of ways to help. Um, but, you know, that yeah, type you know of thing. I think that's a, can, that's a great idea. I think I'm if they have that. bought our books, if they bought the book, my books, they can put just donate them to the library and then help. Uh, you know, people become familiar with this direction of research. So there's a lot of things people can do. It's not just about writing a check, but uh, we do accept money. Right. And all donations right. are tax but, deductible. But Stephen's right, guys. I mean, even if we, even if you guys out there don't have enough money to donate money, there's other ways that we can be, be you know, bring awareness to this because the more awareness of this ideology that is is out there but just by sharing uh like steven said I'll, i'm going to take i'm going to i want both of your documentaries i'm going to put them on my youtube channel and, and then well i'll post them on my orion rising uh, uh page as well and maybe we can put it on the ancient aliens and run it there too i know that you've we've already approved you to be pre-approved to post on there so um you know that i think that that's a a, a great idea guys because the uh, the way this all works anything like this, the governmental systems wouldn't want this out there for the world to know how to do because if you can generate your own power for free, that's why they like solar, but they make you pay for the for the panels, and then you still have to be hooked up to the grid. You know that way, if you generate extra um, energy, it gets to go to the energy company. Although they passed a law in California out here that if that happens, the energy company has to uh, either credit you or pay you for that. Uh, where it used to not be that way, and they would just rip you off. They were trying to do that in Arizona as well. I just moved from Arizona a couple of years ago uh, out to California, and that was a big discussion there because they have a. Uh, there's a lot of companies that are that are kind of scamming people uh, by selling. You know, give we'll give you the solar panels for free, uh, but what they don't tell you is that if you generate any electricity more than you use, they get to keep it and they sell it back to the power company so they get paid for that and they still own the the solar panels on your house and you can't uh, sell the house unless the people sign the agreement or you have to take them off and you have to pay for it and 
there's all kinds of craziness that where they're getting over on you. So these guys in the world out there are trying to make a buck, and they're going to try and this information is well, my point of this is this information is not something that they just want out there necessarily because if you guys enough of us out there know about what these guys are doing then we're going to want to go down that road because we know that like he said just generating the pyramid building it the cost of building it is going to be paid hundredfold you know millionfold uh on the back end of what you're going to gain right right uh you know people uh, certainly could could build this type of pump that we're developing they would build it themselves not through us the plans would be you know available online and right. they would use the materials that they have and there would be no kickback to us or anything all it would be is just make the world a better a better and cleaner place right and see that ultimately is is what i'm shooting for and a lot of people and i'm sure you are and you know, because, uh, you know, if you look around the planet, guys, come on, let's be serious. We've done a lot of damage to this place and we need to start cleaning it up before we kill ourselves with our own garbage. You know, Oh yeah, that's for sure. Right. So uh, all, all of our energy systems that we use to generate electricity or uh, energy and is very destructive. Uh, fossil fuels and uh, even hydroelectric dams, nuclear, you know, all have a downside. So uh, this is an ancient technology that we think the geniuses in ancient times developed, but that it has a lot of advantages. So that's that's what we're trying to do is redevelop this ancient technology. Well, and I think a lot of what, this is my opinion, guys, but I think, I don't know how Stephen will take this. I'll see what he thinks about this. But I think a lot of the problem that we have today in our modern day on the world is that we think that because we have technology, one, that makes us better than anyone else ever and smarter than anyone else ever on the face of the earth, my thinking is that the truth is that you, the technology we have, and like Stephen just said, the cost uh, to damage being done to our environment by these things that we're using for our technology or to run our technology I think that what we really need to do is take a look in the past at everyone else and every culture that was here prior to our technological advanced culture and understand and really look into the fact that they were just as smart, if not smarter than we are. And I think they were smarter than we are because I think that they kept their carbon footprint low on purpose more I think a lot of it was they had to because they didn't know have technology. But I think some of these people might have chosen to do things in a way that wasn't technological because there's, this is my opinion again, because it kept the carbon footprint down. I think we, as a society, need to get back to doing that. What do you think about that? Oh, yes. Well, I think that they respected the environment and the world that they lived in and probably honored that world by producing technology that was... Uh, environmentally friendly if you will so yeah it's uh, you know i admire them but uh, the ancient peoples around the world have had uh, high technology and there's a lot of examples the baghdad battery is a good one mm -hmm. but also the ancient egyptians had c-sections and birth control and all of that uh, so uh, the romans you know, had plumbing Oh yeah, plumbing and everything. South America is 
renowned for a lot of medical things. They did terrapanning, you know, brain surgery, if you will, mm -hmm. and the people would live after that. You could tell from the remodeling after this, the uh, surgery, when they had a, a aspirin is from South America. You know, it's it's originally derived from a plant and a lot of medical things from South America. So, yeah, uh, there, there is no primitive ancient peoples, if you will. They, they all were sophisticated, not just in organization or had sophisticated religions and everything, but also in terms of technology. So uh, that's why I think the Great Pyramid is an example of high technology. I agree, and if you look at, you know, we, I think we talked about this before, maybe off air, we didn't do it in the show today, but if you look at, um, in, in ancient Egypt, for instance, you know, Emotep wrote the, his, his medical uh, dictionary, and we didn't find that here in the West until, you know, recent times. And, you know, everybody reads the, you know, they take the Hippocratic Oath because Hippocrates wrote his medical dictionary. And that's the one that we had from history. And that's the one that we used until now, recently, in the last 10 years or 20 years or so, especially the last 10, they've started indoctrinating the, the Emotep medical uh, Bible that they found, medical journal that they found. And they're starting to use the technology and the, the ways that Emotep had actually uh, come up with thousands and thousands of years ago to the point where doctors will actually tell you, and I've had uh, many tell me this, that had we found that medical journal before Hippocrates, we would not be taking the Hippocratic Oath. We'd be taking the Emotepan Oath. <laughs> oh, I believe that. I believe that, uh, certainly. Uh, also, uh, math and, uh, and other things uh, in ancient Egypt, a lot of the uh, math that they had in ancient Greece was from, from Egypt. So, yeah, there's uh, certainly a high uh, sophistication in their uh, knowledge and understanding, but they developed high technologies uh, from that understanding to uh, produce uh, useful things like uh, extremely precise stone cutting and other other things. See, so the point the point I'm making here, and so is is Stephen, is that just because they didn't have cars, planes, trains, and automobiles, doesn't mean that they were stupid. But no. the complete opposite, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, probably the qu quite opposite. Yeah, so uh, you know we've. Uh, you know, we're in a civilization that uh, is not going it, to, it's unsustainable what we're in now by uh, yes. wiping the earth yes. and uh, destroying the environment so we can have uh, bigger bank accounts or whatever. But uh, civilizations like the Eskimo that have been around for a, th a thousand generations, uh, when, when our civilization crumbles from all of the pollution, or uh, all the other problems that we all know about, S sustainable civilizations like the Eskimos will uh, continue. So uh, right. the ancient Egyptians, or whoever built the Great Pyramid, uh, had a sustainable civilization, and they used this Great Pyramid as infrastructure to uh, improve their lives and the lives of their children. Right, absolutely. Now, you know, guys, if you're listening to this, and you're not really an environmentalist and you're not really paying attention to what's going on here. I want to reiterate what Stephen was saying by saying this to you. And, and I say I say this and I tell you, go and, and start paying attention because you'll see that what I'm saying is, is real. 
if we, as a world, as a society, continue doing what we're currently doing, living the way we're currently living, we will cease to exist as a race of people in less than 100 years. I, I think so. Either we'll uh, destroy ourselves with war or uh, pollution or we'll become a slave state, if you will, right. or there will be a, a massive die-off or something's going to happen. We just can't keep going the way we're going uh, because of uh, a lot of reasons, but one of them is the environmental uh, degradation based on our uh, ways that we generate electricity. Yep. Fukushima is a good example over there in Japan with the, that nuclear disaster that so is ongoing. You don't hear about it in the news yeah. because uh, the news is not involved with truth or anything. But it's uh, horrific. And all that all that nuclear power plant did was, was make electrons go through a wire. And uh, But the environmental damage is just incomprehensible. Yeah, and they won't tell you the real... Uh... How, how, how bad that was, including, you know, I had left California at the time, uh, so I just came back, but the radiation level, uh, you know, in the Pacific and in, in California, you know, every, everybody on the coast, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, Canada, all, all the way around that Pacific Rim, um, there's all kinds of radiation you guys have no idea you're being exposed to, uh, including the, the, the wildlife in the, in the oceans. And uh, they're not going to tell you about that because they don't want to worry you. It's just like what they did when 9-11 happened and they lied to all the people in, in the world in New York and said, oh, no, it's okay to breathe the air in there, so just go and find people and, and help them and let's rebuild. And every single first responder is now dying that was there. Yeah, that's a tragedy. Yeah. That is, uh, because they lied to them. The air was not – when that happened, I, I said that. I screamed out loud when – when Hillary Clinton came on television and lied to everybody and said, it's okay to breathe the air. I actually went, you are lying to them. You're going to kill these people. Oh Why yeah. You, you can't just have them put on respirators. Right? Oh yeah. It's, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. And it was, uh, uh, you know, it's tremendous. So we, we have to, uh, be, get closer to the environment. We, yeah. you know, we have to be uh, responsible for our actions. Yeah. And uh, look at the plastics in the ocean, they know. I mean, there are two two organizations that I'm aware of because I was I've done a documentary on on one, and I'm gonna and the other one is uh, I'm I'm working with them. I'm gonna try and do a documentary for them as well. They're all over the internet. So if you guys heard of Four Ocean, that's the American company that's uh, trying to clean the ocean. And then there's another one that's out of uh, Denmark that's doing the same. Now th let's hope that they can make a difference because guys, as as the amount of plastic that's in the ocean uh, right now. Is, is so horrific when you actually look at it that literally by by 2050, okay, this is 2019, almost 2020, okay, so 30 years from now, if we continue doing what we're doing with uh, just uh, the plastic that we have all over the world and tossing it and end up in the ocean, there will be more plastic in the oceans of the world than there will be life. That's, yes. That's a real statistic. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. So we we got these two groups that are trying to uh, trying to clean the ocean of, of the plastic. The problem is, is that, and that's why you know people I hear people that, you know talking about oh are they banning uh, you know Tucker Carlson on Fox I love him but they're banning straws in California like that's gonna help, and I'm like bro every little teeny bit helps. Every yeah. teeny bit that you take plastic 
out of our environment and use something that's recyclable. They have a wood. They have wooden straws now. They have metal straws. Those are one hundred percent biodegradable. Yeah, and plastic is so, not. You know, that's what that's what we want to do in our foundation is to help. You know, and and try try to uh, make a difference. So uh, I know I know where you're coming from on that. Right. And uh, so that was my purpose. I know it was a long drawn out, but that was my purpose was to show you guys that Stephen and his foundation is trying to make that difference. They're not just you see what I'm saying. So it's worthy of a thought. It's worthy of telling. It's worthy of if you can't do something say monetarily or or otherwise just spreading the knowledge that there's someone out there working on this device that is a, a very low carbon footprint self-sustaining is something that i think that that we should talk about and get out there to the people so that people understand that one we have a problem and two there's people that are trying to to fix it and that those people are the ones that we need to spend our money on to, you know, and get people talking about it, because if more people talk about it, my point here is the more we talk about Stephen and what he's doing in his foundation, the more that word gets out there. And eventually what happens is somebody with money says, hey, what's this? And then they go to Stephen's foundation with a large amount of money to donate. That's how we can help. If we don't have the money to donate, we need to spread the word, right? Yeah. Appreciate that. That's what we're trying to do when we uh, come on uh, talk shows like yours. It's a great resource to spread the word about the direction of our research. So we're doing that, and all we ask people to do is to become familiar with the research and then, you know, contemplate the uh, if it's valuable or not instead of making some rash decision. So, uh, you know, more and more people all the time are uh, uh, say that our research is compelling and uh, they they really like it like you do yeah when I when I first uh, started hearing about what you were working on you know that when I, I talked to you years ago and I was like wow what this is you know let me look into this because you know for me everybody everybody has, likes the pyramids you said that there's a, so everybody there we're all obsessed with the pyramids it's just because it's a wonder of the world so any any theory I, I did like you did you know back in the day I'm old enough you know I'm going to be 52 I went to the library some of you don't even know what that is <laughs> that was our internet <laughs> it was our internet source we go to the library I did the same thing I went to the library and read everything that I could read and as the documentaries came out as television it progressed uh, I watched that and as the internet uh, hit and the same thing uh, I was I've always been you know obsessed with that because it is one of the seven wonders of the world how did it get built by who and when so this this idea, uh, to me, is probably the, the, the one idea, like I said before, is the one idea that I can look at and get my head around and say, you know, that actually makes sense. Every other one that they say just in my brain doesn't make sense because of logis lo the logistics of what they had to do. We talked about this before. You know, if they were dragging the, had pachyderms dragging and they put grease down like you see in the Ten Commandments, or you had, um, you know, guys that were pulling ropes, rope pull pullers, like you said, real strong back guys, that would still in, in just, you know, you would have to have tension going uphill to stop it from sliding back down on the grease. And if you were rolling it on rollers, it's the same thing. So not only do you have to have enough strength to pull this thing, you also have enough have to have enough strength to resist gravity trying to have it go back downhill. Right. So, right. yeah. So, you know, oh, oh, well, they say, well, then there was guys that with the these poles, 
Okay, the best tools they had then were bronze. So you're going to tell me they had bronze poles, like a wedge, and that they would walk up behind it and they would stick it in the ground behind it to, to wedge it in, which does damage to the block itself now, mind you. Stick it in there and hold it. And they would all hold their little, their little rods there behind it, hoping that it wouldn't slide down and run them all over. And then the next guys would go, pull, and they would go forward, and they'd all run back up to the block again and go, tink, and put it in there. And the 1,000 guys standing there held that 100-ton block in place. That, that's not plausible, guys. <laughs> it's just not. Well, it's it, my mind, right, Stephen? No, it's, it's not. Uh, I mean, they can draw pictures about that, but it it's doesn't work in the real world. And the Great Pyramid was built in the real world. But uh, like the Erie Canal, it was four and a half feet deep, and in two years, it moved the entire weight equal to the Great Pyramid and lifted it higher than the Great Pyramid. So water locks are uh, fast and reliable and controllable and very strong in lifting heavy payloads. Yeah, literally. And we know that. Like we said, you, you've given proof of that, that we're using that technology around the world and have been for many years. So, guys, I say... Like I said before, you guys need to look into this um, instead of just, you know, some people are just naysayers. You, you know, that there's a reason why we have theoretical research and then applied. So when you have like physics, you have theoretical physicists who think shit up, but then they have to apply that to make it work. And, what, and what's happening here and throughout history is that all of the ideas on how the pyramids got built, have got all these theories and nobody has proven there's no applied okay but Stephen's showing you how that works and that there is an applied method and they and that if you look you can see I think you guys weren't you guys doing the research where you're actually showing how the how they literally would have done that on site right oh yes we uh didn't you guys we build a model or something? Hide all the evidence for water locks and uh, water on the Giza Plateau. So yeah, there's a whole there's a whole uh, body of evidence mm -hmm. that is being compiled both in our books, documentaries, and uh, and other information. So yeah, there there's a lot to it, and uh, some of it is quite involved. So uh, it's more than just saying oh aliens did it or they had a magic wand, but it's it's quite a procedure just as building the Empire State Building was quite a procedure, so was building the uh, Great Pyramid water pump. So uh, we, we have a whole uh, body of evidence and information about that. See, so I think it's a theory you guys should look into. Um, and go, you have to, the only way that you, can, uh, that you can learn anything in life is you have to have an open mind instead of having, uh, like, like Stephen said, when he goes in looking at stuff, he doesn't have any preconceptions. He, he's not trying to make it fit. And that's what the problem has been, I think, in, in the academic world is that they have an idea going in and they try to prove their idea instead of investigating like as if they were uh, trying to solve a crime. And Stephen, has ha he's got that mindset of a, of a crime solver. He's trying, he sees there's, here's the equation, here's the sum. It's there in front of me. How did that get there? And so he's looking at all the investigated, all the possible ways of how that got there. And then he found this book that this gentleman wrote back in the 60s. And he read that and said, wait a minute, that's let's take a look at that. And he went down that rabbit hole and, and look where that's gotten him. OK, so he's he and the reason he's still doing this is because out of all the other theories that are out there, this is the one that actually works. OK, and that to me 
was is why I'm a, a, a you know a endorsing Stephen because to me I ran through the same thing and he shows that and I went what you know this actually could have worked all the other things that you when you really look at them and you put them under scrutiny they break down and they just don't work but this one does so I don't see why anybody would resist unless they already have an agenda in their brain as to what they think you know is what it is and so because of that they have a closed mind right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that, uh, you know, recommendation. And uh, but a lot of people say that the research is compelling, mm -hmm. and that it is, uh, you know, uh, pe people say that it is quite uh, fascinating when they watch our video series on our website, and they say, yeah, I, you know, they can see that uh, a lot of people say, wow, you're on to something. Well, we're just trying to find out how this ancient structure was built and why they did it. Right, and I, I agree with the, your theory, I do, and you know that, uh, that it, when you really look at it, guys, if you look at it with an open mind and say, what if, you know, and, and you don't take any assumptions, just say, well, why, that's, that's why you get, why would it have been built? Well, I, I kind of ran that through right and by you, that we know that it was a, a green, lush, place to live at one time and then the climate changed at around that same time period the pyramid popped up i mean it could be a coincidence but you know when when something like that happens you know if you look at the dam system that we have right well let's see first there was a river and then there wasn't and it, the water swelled up well at the same time the structure was built <laughs> yeah right <laughs> right so, I mean, you got to kind of look at, at that, you know, there was something that happened, something changed, a necessity for something arose, conveniently something appeared, and uh, it, it appears to do what you, what it used to nature used to do for them, but we're going to say that there was a king buried in there because, you know, even though we have no proof of that, and, and if you don't like it, then go away, <laughs> right? <laughs> Well, it sounds, that last part sounds like an Egyptology, that's for sure. That's what I'm saying. Oh. That's what they, that's their, their their take on it, and they're sticking to it, which is okay. Mm -hmm. They can because, you know, just because you don't look up at the sky doesn't mean it's not blue. <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, if you say somebody, look up, it's blue. I'm not looking up. It's not blue. It's purple. But you have to look up. No, I'm not looking up. It's blue. I know it's blue because I've been told it's blue my whole life. I mean, it's been purple. That's what they told me my whole life. Well, look up. No. See, so if you don't look up, if you don't look at a thing, you can't see a thing. So if you refuse to look at the pyramid in any other way than it was made for kings, you're never going to see it any other way because that's what you want it to be. Right. It's hard, it's hard for people to change their, their uh, understanding. If they already think that it's one thing, then it's hard to... Uh, to but, but that's what we're asking people to do is to... Uh, read our uh, information, and then uh, consider what, what we have to say uh, in our direction of research. And, and a lot of people are uh, uh, really considering the type of uh, purpose that we propose for the Great Pyramid and also how it was built. So it's it's been an exciting ride for me. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, other than this pyramid stuff, I'm just a regular guy. But it's gotten me to Egypt, and it's I've uh, met so many wonderful people like yourself. So it's been a, it's been very interesting studying this, not just to learn about the Great Pyramid, but all the other things that go with it. 
Well, you know, and, I, and I'll, I'll leave the, the audience with this before because we're getting up to upwards around two hours now. And But I want you to give all your information again. But, guys, think about this. In history and the history that we know currently, we are now learning systematically in the last 20 years that almost everything we thought we knew we had wrong. And including what head we had on what dinosaur. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. And and you know they said that the the uh, the uh, Mahabharata and the, and the, all those stories were untrue because those cities were were never found. And guess what? They found those cities fifty miles under the water, where the water level of the oceans had been you know fifty feet lower. It wasn't fifty miles. I'm sorry. It was fifty feet. It had been fifty feet lower. A thousand years ago than they are today. Well, we live on the waterline now. Every city on every coast of every country has cities. And if the water level rose 25 feet, all of those cities would be flooded and we'd have to move to higher ground. So no one took that into account. And then they said, well, it's not there. We don't see it. They went down with scuba gear and they find these civilizations underwater that have now been flooded. So they have to rewrite history and say, wow, those cities really did exist. And they foretold that they sank into the ocean like Atlantis and like a, uh, a couple of other cities in the Bible. Well, what if they didn't just sink into the ocean? Like, what if the water rose and swallowed them because the sea level rose? Well, we know that it did do that now. So we, my point here is that, that we have always come up with an idea early on that, you know, if archaeologists always, no matter what they find, it's always religious. Yes. It's always some religion, and this is a religious gathering, and, and that's driven me crazy since I was a boy. I've always went, what if it wasn't? What if that was just some place where everybody was? What if there was? it was a theater and people acted there? Nope. It right. was a religious ceremony, and they had religious stuff, and oh, by the way, they were cutting each other's hearts out and drinking the blood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the story they come up with. So it's, uh, it's bizarre, but... Uh... You know, we're in a new revolution of understanding of ancient, well, of everything, but uh, certainly of ancient mankind and its accomplishments. So uh, they're getting away from just everything is religious, uh, no matter what, even Baghdad batteries, Egyptologists say, are a religious artifact. So it's, uh, it's uh, you know, the, this new revolution, we're putting away the, the ideas of the old, uh, you know, the old generation. And uh, we're getting a new understanding of just how brilliant ancient people were and of their great achievements. So that's, that's part of the, the theme that we're, we're on in our organization. And we hope other people will, uh, you know, respond to that in a positive way. Agreed. So once again, tell everybody where they can find your website. Those of you who have visuals, you're seeing his books and stuff on the screen as I'm scrolling them on the slideshow. But those of you who are listening to this on the podcast, you don't ha you don't have that. So Stephen, tell everybody, uh, give them your websites and and your uh, YouTube channel, your uh, your books where they can find those, all of that. Give them all your all your knowledge. Okay, uh, the the website is thepump.org. And from there, you can get links to my books and documentaries, which are available from Amazon.com. Uh, the uh, Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid is my first book. The Great Pyramid Prosperity Machine is my second book. My first documentary is Building the Great Pyramid Using Water Locks and Barges. And my second documentary is 
simply uh, called uh, the Great Pyramid Water Pump. So uh, all of that, the links for that is from our website and you can contact us through our website if you have any questions or if you want to become involved or uh, if you uh, you know you know whatever if you uh, are interested in the tour that we're doing so uh, you can contact us so hopefully people instead of just arguing with other people on Facebook they'll get involved and make a difference in the world and that's what that's what we're trying to do so that's uh, that's uh, all the information I have. Okay, great guys, and, and I, you know, I agree that I think there's too much, um, there's too many naysayers. Instead of being a naysayer, guys, I want you to try and prove it. This is what I tell everybody on every show. Don't listen to anything that I've said. Don't believe anything that I've said or what Stephen said on this show. If you think that we're wrong, go look it up. Go and do the research. Prove that I'm wrong or that Stephen's wrong, and then contact me, and I'll put you on the show. I've been I've been saying that for over three years now that I've been doing my show and other shows on other people's for other people, and I have yet to have somebody call me up on any time I've said that about anything and say, hey, you know what, you're wrong, and I can prove it, and I want to come on your show and talk about it. No one ever. So the reason for that is that if you go and you do this research, you're then going to find out that uh, this stuff is is uh, true, right? So and and then you're going to be a fan. That's what's going to happen, and you're going to want to get involved. All right, guys, so the, it was a great show. Uh, you can find this show will be on Orion Rising, the uh, page, on um, Facebook, also on my uh, YouTube channel, Orion Rising, and it'll also be my podcast, which is also Orion Rising, and the podcast is listened to in 55 countries around the world, so it's in everywhere that you want to listen to a podcast. If you have a favorite a place and you happen to find this on my YouTube channel and you wanted to hear it on the podcast, um, if you have a favorite place that you go and listen to the podcast and it's not there yet, contact me and I'll make sure that it gets there. Okay. Um, Stephen, thank you again. Uh, it was a great, great show as usual. You're, uh, I love talking to you about this stuff because I think you're cutting edge. I think you're uh, taking a fresh look at uh, something that's very plausible and very uh, applicable to uh, what is there and why it was there. I really do. And I think that history... Uh, will show that um, that you were correct, and a lot of your naysayers are just going to have to admit that at some point. <laughs> That's my opinion. Um, but and if not, and somebody else comes up with a better idea, um, I would love to hear it because you know ideas are, are like a butthole. Everybody has one, and they all stink. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so, thanks for the thank you for the kind words. And will this be on uh, your YouTube channel? Yes, it will. It'll be. I'm gonna have. We'll we'll put this up. It'll probably it'll be on um, uh, Facebook, YouTube, and then of course it'll be on you know iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, um, Pod. You know what is it? Uh, uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. It's gonna be all over the the internet and all over the place. Oh, great! So, uh, and I'll and I'll make sure I get you a hard copy of the um, video and of the audio. Uh, you know, the MP3 and MP4 file. That way you can have both to do whatever you want with them. So I'll make sure I send those to you. Uh, awesome. So, uh, again, thank you very much, sir, for for being on here and uh, and letting me pick your brain and, and talk to you for a couple hours about this. And uh, everybody out there, it was a great show. Uh, tune in on Fridays. 
I'm still doing the Law of One on Fridays as long as you guys want to hear about it. If you don't want to hear about it, let me know and I'll stop doing it. Uh, and then I do shows on just about anything else on Wednesday, as you know, and I'm thinking about adding a Monday show, but I'm not sure yet. I'm working on a deal with uh, some of the other guys uh, that do shows. We're thinking about doing a, a, a show uh, on a, a site together because Facebook, uh, having the problems that we're having with Facebook being fascist and uh, kind of censoring people who have uh, ideas that are different from theirs is kind of getting annoying. So uh, again, sir, thank you very much. Uh, stay put. Let me let me go ahead and end the show, guys. Thank you for being here. Share this. Go to my YouTube page. Like the page. Uh, hit the little uh, like button. Hit the uh, button to subscribe and the little bell. Same thing. Uh, my Facebook or my uh, uh, yeah my Facebook page, Orion Rising. If you go there and like that. You'll see the calendar of events that I have up there, so you'll know up-and-coming shows and wh who's going to be on and when they're going to be there. Right now, the calendar's a little thin because I took some time off like uh, like uh, uh, Stephen did. I, I took a, a couple weeks off for vacation uh, during this last holiday, uh, and uh, so now I'm, I'm back uh, doing the shows this week uh, and next week and from there on. So catch the show, like the show, pass it on, send it to your friends, uh, share it, share it out to everybody because the more exposure we get, the, the more we can bring you this stuff and the more stuff we can bring you and the more stuff like Stephen and his foundation and the things that he's doing, which is making a difference uh, and could possibly make a big difference to our environment in a positive way. And anything like that, I'm for 100%. All right, guys, thank you. Thank you.